The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. So thank you all for coming um, this evening. I'm Patrice Kelch, and I'm one of the um, longtime members of Common Ground and a longtime friend of Santi Caro, who is a longtime friend of the center here. And Santi Caro, um, after college, went into the Peace Corps in Thailand. And after his time in the Peace Corps, he sat a retreat with Buddha Dasa, who is one of the um, most renowned, most interesting, uh, complex thinker um, of the great Thai masters of the previous century. And Santi Caro was a monk and was uh, Buddha Dasa's primary translator for well over a decade. So he spent a lot of time in very close proximity understanding Buddha Dasa's teachings and um, and his his great lessons. Um, he has come to the United back to the United States and he now uh, the the um, monastery that he was at in Thailand was called Swan Mok and uh, that means Liberation Park, and Santi Caro has established a Liberation Park here in the United States in Wisconsin near uh, Norwalk, which is kind of close to where 90 and 94 come together in Wisconsin. And it's just a beautiful site. It's a valley. There's a guest house being built. Um, so it's a wonderful place to go and connect with nature and the Dharma. Um, and Santi Caro welcomes people to come, Santi Caro and his partner, Joe Marie. And as I said, they're building a guest house, which will make it um, even more um, hospitable. If you don't like um, tenting in a platform. Uh, and uh, Santi Caro has just finished translating a book, um, Buddha Dasa's book on uh, dependent co-arising. Is that it right? One of his. One of his. Well, actually, as many books, this in Thai is not a book. It was a series of retreat talks. And so it's been, I didn't just translate it. I translated it years ago, but it's taken a long time to get published, which will be soon. So this is our segue into our, our talk um, this evening, but it is always really a treat to have Santi Caro come and, um, and be with us. So thank you so much. Thanks. If I may, um, it's interesting that you said I sat a retreat with Ajahn Buddhadasa. Um, in the Thai setting that makes no sense. So it's just want to point out a habit of taking what we do here and mapping it onto what goes on elsewhere. Which and it's not just because Americans are imperialistic, although we are. But this has happened throughout Buddhist history 
that whatever's going on at a certain phase gets mapped onto elsewhere. And then whoever's got the power gets to create, or then your narrative sticks for a while till somebody else trumps it. Um, It was not intended, (laughs) but I noticed as it was coming out. So anyway, uh, in Thailand, you just show up at the monastery, which I did, and then I returned, and then I stayed. Here in the States, we have a retreat-based idea about practice for many of us. But that's actually quite strange in Buddhist history. And it has to do with how we organize our economy. But that's not tonight's talk, so I'm going to move on. (laughs) But I couldn't... uh, restrain myself from making that kind of comment, partly because over and over I hear Americans, including famous teachers, making statements about the Buddha and this and that, which have no historical basis. It's based on our assumptions and Sometimes that's harmless, sometimes it creates confusion. Tonight's talk goes along with tomorrow's workshop or retreat, and the theme is weathering life's storm. Late last spring, our section of Monroe County, Wisconsin, had a particularly nasty storm. And a very strong wind came through, and it was quite narrow. And it it passed along one of our boundaries, our northern boundary and knocked down 30 or 40 trees, most of which were not doing so good. We have butternuts that are dying of a fungal disease, and we had some old oaks that just weren't stable enough. But we also lost one of our big shagbark hickories, And um, since I do believe in uh, anthropogenic climate change, I think this is part of the uh, increased turbulence and uh, vehemence in the weather systems that pass through. And then now that it's winter uh, in our neck of Wisconsin, we're getting this 
wintry mix, ice storm, freezing rain weather, which is really nasty. It's hard on the wildlife. And uh, we have a 600-foot driveway, which keeping it ice-free so the cars don't go tumbling lower down the valley is, is a challenge. So for me, storms are a vivid metaphor. Also, having grown up, I grew up outside Chicago, and every summer we'd have those rollicking great thunderstorms where the sky turns purple and green, and we would stick cheese to the stop sign to see if it would get hit by a lightning bolt. <laughs> There's a yield sign in front of our house. Can't remember. I think we told younger kids that, oh yeah, two years ago it got fried, but I don't think that was actually true. Anyway, storms is something powerful and evocative for me. And it seemed appropriate to describe what was going on in our society last year. And as the elections uh, played out, including the primaries, some of the nastiness I heard going on between Bernie Bernie and Hillary's supporters, for example. I heard some pretty pretty bad stories from both sides. And then uh, I don't have so many <laughs> people who were supporting people like Ted Cruz or Ben Carson, but I hear they exist. And uh, things seem pretty nasty on that side as well. And then in the general election, as that played out over the fall, I was, um, and by the way, I did favor one of the two candidates, But I was also concerned not only that my preferred candidate win, but whoever might win, what are we going to do with this ugly, divisive mess where whichever side won would think they're kind of superior to the other side? And I think this is true of many liberals as well as many so-called conservatives. And I'm aware liberal conservative are way too crude in stereotypic categories. But tonight's talk isn't to dig into the nuances of that. But what I'm leading up to is even before 
the actual general election, I was wondering what is the role of people like me who publicly explored the teachings of the Buddha and tried to draw on Buddhist resources, not only to enhance our personal lives, but our collective lives. And so I was giving thought, as were other friends and colleagues, how do people in my situation, as well as centers like Common Ground, what role can we play in the healing that's necessarily going to be badly needed, whoever wins the election. And then it turns out that many of us were shocked, myself included, by who won. And since, among many friends and students, there's anger, plenty of ways we could talk about the election being stolen or rigged, such as by voter suppression, fear, uh, what's going to happen. And these are largely white people who aren't going to bear the brunt of it, but yet many of us uh, I would say are rationally afraid, and if we're people of color, gay, religious minorities, such as myself, or um, cancer survivors, such as myself, which if Obamacare is yanked, which they fortunately may not be able to do, I might be in big trouble healthcare-wise. So many of us who thought we were kind of cozy in liberal la-la land are now quite scared. And then if we're non-white, well, we had reason to be scared anyway or already. The angst of that, the anxiety, the despair, the numbing, the shutting down has, has been an active thing in just about any sangha I interact with, which are, since the election, primarily in the Midwest though other times I get out to the east and west coasts. So before the election, I was already thinking about what are resources we can draw upon to weather these storms. And I've continued to explore this, and I'll be doing so tonight with an overview more conceptual 
and follow up tomorrow with practices that we can do to enable us to weather the storms and not just the external ones or the climate storms. Another thread in my life recently has been learning about trauma. A student and friend really uh, challenged me to look into the trauma literature, and I've begun to do so, uh, learning things that I feel I should have known, but never quite registered. For example, how much child abuse there is in this country. Probably most countries. I don't think America's all that much worse than, say, China or Thailand. But it's not about who's better or worse. A quarter of American children are abused. I would say that's disgusting and horrific. How often do we hear about it? None of the candidates talked about it liberal or conservative, except when it could be thrown at somebody uh, for narrow political gain. Uh, If you've seen the movie The Big Short, which does an excellent job of showing how utterly corrupt our financial system is, These are heavy-duty storms. I'm a cancer survivor. That's, along with child abuse, another huge epidemic in this country. Uh, The opiate epidemic, as it's spoken of in Wisconsin, we can go on and on and on. There are these huge, huge, external storms that pretty much we avoid talking about. And for many of us who are in the middle class, the, I would say, ridiculous levels of stress we put up with to stay in the middle class. The economy we have for many of us, it's just chock full of stress. And yet we put up with it. To me, it's pretty scary, and I've made the decision to do my best to not play along with the silence, which, by the way, is not noble silence. That's something we practice on retreat. But there's another silence that goes on, and it's uh, quite ignoble. 
Now, as a Buddhist practitioner, somewhat of a student, researcher, scholar, and teacher, I can't help but see the storms as also triggering, evoking, and being fed what by what we can call inner storms. Buddhist tradition speaks of the three poisons or the three fires, greed, hatred, delusion, or lust, anger, and delusion, confusion. And you'll see varying translations, aversion for the second one, ignorance for the third one. I like to throw in fear as a fourth, since obviously there's a lot of that going on. With the external storms, whether it's climate disruption, environmental degradation, racism, etc., etc., we've got these storms inside of ourselves, fear, anger, shutting down uh, the ways we numb ourselves. I'm a bit of a I confess I was a bit of a news junkie throughout the election last year, and now I'm kind of go, trying to go, not quite cold turkey, but that reminded me of the futility of reading too much news, especially when it's not news. It's more like olds. So tonight, I'm not going to dwell on what we might call the external storms. I want to address more the internal storms, but allow me to try to avoid what I think has been a frequently big mistake in Buddhist history is to try to separate the external stuff from the internal. In America, we do it in a somewhat different way than it was done in places like Thailand, which was more of a feudal society through most of Buddhist history. Here, we do it through our uh, individualism, whether it's I'm a baby boomer, so I'm more familiar with boomer individualisms, but it seems Gen X, millennials have their version as well. We compartmentalize a lot, and we focus quite narcissistically on our own stuff and think that's what Buddhism's about. I've heard over and over, it's all about personal experience. and No, it's not. It's also about sangha and the collective suffering that we're immersed in. So I don't want to feed that, uh, 
that um, distortion that somehow the inner storms are separate from the external storms. However, to be honest, Buddhist history is not all that strong on the external storms. And that's still true in this country as well, with important exceptions both here and in Asia. But Buddhism does have some real strengths for the internal storms. And that's what I most want to draw upon tonight and tomorrow. But one reason I want to connect the internal and external storms, which to me it's obvious when we feel buffeted by the external storms, how many of you have had fear triggered or anger or despair about some of the stuff I've mentioned? Pick your favorite uh, upsetting piece of external reality. Did any of these trigger fear, anxiety, worry, or shutting down, kind of trying to go into a cocoon, sticking our head in the sand or whatever. And then to look at it from the other side, it's not hard to see how when the anger that's ubiquitous in our society or the fear or the confusion collectively feeds the external storms. I feel the Buddha's contribution to disentangling and healing some of this is to begin healing or actually at first just being able to withstand the internal storms. And if, as many fear, the next year or two is going to be pretty nasty, I I don't know, maybe it won't be. I'll be pleasantly surprised. But I find myself gritting my teeth as we have Senate confirmation hearings without ethical background checks, which is unprecedented. That's pretty scary. <laughs> so um, how are we going to withstand these storms? By the way, I'm not suggesting that we need to be cool and okay with it. Um, by the way, my father died last month. And I kept noticing people, how's your mom? Is she okay? I've really been hearing in this question. We, we keep at, is it okay? Are you okay? Why do we want things to be okay? What the hell does that mean? I'll bet you it's delusion. So 
I'm not going to go off on that one too far. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm not suggesting our goal is to be okay with this stuff. It's too messed up to be okay with it. And it's not fair. It's not respectful to our fear, our stress levels, our anger, our despair, um, our grief. I also confess I've believed in American democracy. So I'm kind of grieving that one as well. It sure looks like it's been flushed. I know Minnesota's kind of might still have some functioning democracy. I'm not following your politics. Boy, it's hurting in Wisconsin. Uh, I don't want to pretend this stuff is okay or that we should be okay with it. So I'm talking about weathering the storms, getting blown around, being chafed, and yet coming through it without serious damage. So here's some things I'd like to offer for weathering the storms external and internal. First thing I'd like to remind or draw attention to is something that in the Buddha's primary meditation teaching is called experiencing the whole body of breathing. By the way, if, if you want poly language terms to make it sound authoritative, I can provide those. It's a little game we sometimes play. Um, whole body of breathing. Here's my current understanding of that. And this this is uh, central to the Buddha's primary meditation teaching. While exhaling, fully release the exhalation. Sounds kind of normal, easy. At least it does to me. Does, does that sound normal? Guess what? Most people don't. Have you ever really watched your breathing? Often we're hurrying our breathing because we're Americans. We're in a hurry. We're stressed out. We have too much to do. We're sleep deprived and we drink a lot of caffeine. I do at least. Uh, we do not, for the most part, fully release our breaths. So, 
And of course, there's exceptions to everything I say. I'm being a little provocative, if you haven't noticed. But I'm, <laughs> I don't feel I'm being extremely. And on the breath thing, I'm, I'm not really exaggerating. Very few people consistently fully release the exhalations. When we do, and we can learn to do so through certain yoga practices, tai chi, certain kinds of body work, and uh, meditation systems like mindfulness with breathing, when we fully release a breath, it relaxes us throughout the body, but also emotionally, and our mental turmoil. By the way, this is backed up by uh, some of the trauma research. When we let the exhalations fully release and do that over, say, 30 minutes or more. The breathing slows down a lot to where we might be taking six breaths a minute, four breaths, two breaths, and the breathing becomes incredibly more efficient. Things change quite a bit when we do this. Second, that's half of the whole body of breath, the exhalation. Second, and it's, it's important to do the full release of the exhalation for a while before part two with skill and gentle persistence we can very gently encourage the inhalations to go deeper and deeper. How many of us feel our breath down in the pubic area and in the lower back in any consistent way? The whole body of breathing is both the full release and then on the inhalation, the movement and energy of breath drops all the way down into what in China, what in China is called the Dantian. It's a little below the navel and in the middle. But that movement and energy can be felt in the pelvis. And the energy of it can then flow throughout the body. This is when we really experience the whole body of breathing because breath is not just the respiratory respiratory system exchanging gases. 
it's energy. It's the energy of life, prana in India, chi in China, hua in the middle in um, Hebrew, and spirit or spiritus in Latin. When we can experience the whole body of breathing for, say, half an hour a day, I do this every morning before getting out of bed, most mornings at least. And if I'm driving down the highway and get cut off, I'll I'll revisit this because it's better than giving somebody the you-know-what, which is a bad habit I'm finally outgrowing. (laughs) Actually, I outgrew it, but that urge is still there. Let me just say a few more wonderful things about the whole body of breathing. One, you will drop a lot of stress when you let yourself breathe this way. And by the way, it doesn't happen by just watching the breath. A lot of people watch the breath but they don't watch it enough or deeply enough for what I'm describing to happen. In most cases, breath remains primarily in the chest, shallow and somewhat hurried. There are many, there are exceptions. We relax that energy is soothing and healing physically and emotionally. And we get quiet inside. And specifically relevant to tonight's topic, it's strong. But it's not strong in a shut-down or armored way, which is the way many of us pretend to be strong or tough or any of those things. This is strong because it's full of life and energy and all the cognitive blah, blah, blah has relaxed quite a bit. There may still be some thought, but it's not It's not the out-of-control narratives that often has us spinning. So this is something I would like to suggest for weathering life's storms. It's also helpful, by the way, an earlier version of this talk was inspired by somebody who was dreading Thanksgiving dinner because, and this was 
came up before the election, but somebody was looking up, anticipating Thanksgiving dinner where certain family members were going to treat her very badly because she was considered the family liberal. She wasn't the only one, but she's the one who had bumper stickers. (laughs) And here she was at a meditation session, all tense, in anticipation of an event a month away. But because it had happened repeatedly with siblings, and she was looking for some advice, how do you show up for Thanksgiving dinner when there's somebody in the family who will have a few extra beers and might get abusive, and there's a long track record of that kind of stuff. And then somebody else spoke up, well, that I don't have that for Thanksgiving. It's just me and my dog. But at work, there's somebody Uh, this kind of breathing can help. It's not going to prevent the storm. It's not going to excuse somebody's abusive behavior. But like it or not, there's a lot of abusive, horrible stuff going on that so far we're not able to stop. How are we going to live with it without pretending that things are okay? I'm fine. It's nice. Second thing I'd like to mention is allowing sadness. I've been working consciously with sadness since 9-11. I was living on a little farm outside Kansas City at that time. And within about half an hour of seeing the planes hit the World Trade Center, I was pretty sure we were going to war. I'd read enough. American history that there's going to be a war and I'm not proud that I was right but I was and so I spent that whole week there was this little pond in a canoe and I was just paddling around the pond uh, being sad and trying to just sit with the sadness. And what I discovered was sadness is not a problem. It's not something to medicate. It's okay to be sad. In fact, it's appropriate. Somebody we care about dies. 
children are being abused all over the place, etc., etc. It's okay to be sad. It turns out there's a Buddhist word for this, sangvega. In traditional stories about the pre-Buddha, not the awakened Buddha, but the young fellow who left home and eventually awakened under the Bodhi tree. In the legends, and they are legends, there's no, they could have some autobiographical reality, but there's no way to know. But the legends tell of Sangvega being awakened when Siddhartha had experiences where he let down the cognitive filters and his he seemed to be deep down a very sensitive person and he had not desensitized through too much TV or drugs or overwork or whatever. And he really, he went through a series of experiences and fully took in the fact of aging, illness, and death. And this shook him deeply, enough that he decided coming to terms with these realities was the most important important thing in his life. Now, the framing, aging, illness, and death is pre-Buddhist. These were concerns of Indian philosophy and religiosity at that time and maybe before. But most cultures deal with aging, illness, and death one way or another some more honestly than others. In the case of the young man who became the Buddha or who awakened and then was known as Buddha, this sadness really triggered something, including a profound compassion for the state our species was in and that it still is in. So my second suggestion for weathering the storms is to allow the sadness Third, as we're allowing sadness and respecting our emotions like fear, grief, and so on, 
to learn the difference between depressing and depressed. It seems to me our society, partly with help from the pharmaceutical industry, has blurred the difference between sadness and depression. And we like to dole out medication. Of course, the favorite place to do that's the corner bar. And then there are other ways to medicate. But we also have all kinds of drugs. Now, I'm right now I'm not speaking about legitimate depression, which does exist. And I I believe that there's when done carefully and responsibly, there's effective use of antidepressants. But we are such an over-medicated society passing out this stuff to school kids, even preschool, to make them more docile, especially if they're children of color. We are really confused about the difference between depressing and depressed. To illustrate I would say our current situation is depressing. Maybe less so here in Minneapolis than rural Wisconsin, maybe. But I don't mind saying it's depressing. But that doesn't mean I need to be depressed. Actually, I find when I'm more honest with myself that, boy, this looks pretty lousy. I know people don't really like to hear that in a Dhamma talk, but I was asked to speak, and Dhamma, among its many meanings, one is truth, and this I'm doing my best. But we can see things as depressing, without getting depressed. How to navigate that boundary is a whole talk in itself. An easy way to make the distinction, I think, is boring and bored. Uh, It might be a cliche or a stereotype, teenagers rolling their eyes, boring. Do they still say that? Um, but we can have an initial perception, I use that word with a certain precision, an initial perception that something is boring. It's not exciting, stimulating, ringing my bell, drawing my interest. Okay, we throw the word boring at it. That's a perception. 
we don't have to throw the label boring at it, but it may come up pretty quickly, especially if we're used to using that label. But boredom is actually a choice. Now, I don't spend much time with teenagers, and it's been a while since I was one. That was at least 20 years ago. Um, So some people may not buy this, but we actually choose to be bored. And it's similar with a lot of certain, let's call it non-chronic depression, where we take a situation, we label it depressing or something similar, and then our involvement with what the information we take in And the reason I use the word perception, that's a way we describe it. The reality is far more rich and complex, but looking at things from certain angles, which, by the way, I've been doing so far in this talk, I'm I'm not talking about the full reality, but highlighting certain parts of it. I'll try to rectify that to some extent as I go on. But when we look at things from a certain angle, such as boring, and then seize on that and highlight aspects of the situation that strengthen the perception and then start behaving in certain ways, because this is how I behave when something's boring, then we make ourselves bored. For many of us, we can put ourselves into depression, and I'm not using that in a clinically responsible way. I'm not actually trained to do so. But we can look at things, perceive, label, think, and start behaving towards them in ways that we get depressed, we get mired in our sadness, we shut down, we're unable to get out of bed. And again, I don't know the clinical side of this well, But we didn't have to do that. Now, some of us, due to past history, body chemistry, maybe a history of abuse, domestic violence, whatever, it's real easy to go there. But many of us who are really having trouble with the post-election situation we can depress ourselves, shut down, and want to just tune out. So this is why I'm suggesting 
learn the difference between boring and bored, which is, I think, more trivial. So then we can also address the much more significant distinction between depressing and depressed. Partly because if middle-class white people don't do this, we're not going to stand up and protect what's worth protecting. And then it's going to get worse, or it might. My fourth suggestion, which I'm partly practicing in this talk, is radical, courageous honesty. This can be done with humor. Uh, It can be done seriously. It can be done in lots of ways. I'm thinking, for example, of some personal family stuff where family has this way of talking about ourselves that makes us feel good, which is okay. All families, well, happy families do that. And my families, my family of origins, fairly happy. Yet, when we cling to that too much, I find we're unable to address certain truths that are lurking in the family history. I mentioned my father died last month. And some of that surfaced around my father's end of life care and treatment, and we weren't prepared to address it because we do not have a history of honesty. The preference is let's let's keep the mutual feel-good story going because we feel better, it's comforting. And by the way, this is what 95% of religion does, perpetuates feel-good stories. 95, I pulled that out of my butt, obviously. (laughs) But I would say a lot, and Buddhism is not immune. And I would say so-called insight meditation is not immune. We've got our feel-good stories about going on retreat, doing a lot of sitting. Some of that may be based in reality. Good. Some of it can be feel-good story. Normal up to a point. But if it gets in the way of being honest about when something's not working or when it's blinding us to certain things like power dynamics, how money is used in major Buddhist centers, who gets to teach, who's not allowed to teach, 
stuff goes on, folks. And if you're the squeaky wheel, guess what happens? So if enough of us, especially together, practice radical, courageous honesty, we can talk more and more about the truth. Part of my own analysis of what happened during the election, going back through the primaries, is the mainstream media totally abrogated responsibility for truth. Not totally, but to a large extent abrogated responsibility towards truth-telling. And I mean New York Times, NPR, we did not get serious truth. And I think we'll be paying the price. Are we ready? And I'm speaking to people who meditate and meditate in a way that, on the surface at least, is committed to insight, which is supposedly about things as they are. Now, truth's a dangerous word. Somebody with a podium can push their truth. And what if truth is far more complex and multivalued? What's the word? Has too many angles for anybody to get the whole thing. How are we going to get at truth? seems to me lots of people sharing our truth and evolving our capacity to keep telling the truth to the best of our ability and keep learning and realize, oh, what I said wasn't as true as I thought. That's okay, but keep, keep trying. That's why I think it takes courage to keep learning and growing and not fall back like somebody in my position on pseudo-scholarship. I can pull out quotes and pretend the Buddha said them, and most people don't know. I can make up Pali words, and most people don't know what language it is. (laughs) So um, how are we going to get at truth? And this includes, like tonight my talk has emphasized the storms, but to, to extend the metaphor a bit, what about the storms of happiness? From a Buddhist perspective, happiness is a storm. Love, at least certain forms, romantic love, in traditional Buddhist perspective, that's a pretty big storm. Uh, What about the pleasant storms we like? And I'm not trying to make happiness out to be a bad thing. And I want to go further to um, 
I'll offer a practice around this tomorrow. There's a Pali word, anumotana, which is a quite rich word. It means to celebrate, appreciate, praise, honor, and give thanks. All of that's kind of wrapped together. It's based in the word for delight. When we see something that is really healthy, of benefit to living beings, to to go, wow, this is cool. Nobody's getting hurt. People are being helped or bird species are being protected. Forests or swamps are being preserved. Anything that's genuinely healthy and of benefit, we need to be honest about these. And so not getting too wrapped up in gloom and doom, those kind of storms, but to also be really honest when, when we see something decent, kind, like some of us... Um, can be critical of President Obama. There's a number of things about his administration that some of us are disappointed by. Cornell West recently had an article in The Guardian, which I quite agree with. But at the same time, there's a lot to appreciate about President Obama himself, his wife and kids, and his administration. This is more of a stretch, but I can even see things to appreciate in the president-elect. To practice honest appreciation and gratitude That's part of the radical honesty. I've got a few other pieces, but I think I've used up my time. So let me just name some other practices that we can draw on for weathering storms. One is service. Many of us here will have heard the word dana, which means to give, or it can mean gift, and by extension, generosity. And in the early Buddhist teachings, it's most frequently expressed as sangha dana, to give to the community, not to individuals. I'd like to suggest that really serving communities like Common Ground, communities like the neighborhood, the Twin Cities, and more broadly, that if we look deeply at our realities, we're all in this together. Even the people who voted for 
somebody we don't care for. Can we learn to serve deeply? And that leads to a sixth suggestion, which is to live for something bigger than me and mine. The inner storms I've mentioned tonight are all grounded in self-centeredness, and egoism. This is another tough one to sort out in our highly individualized and narcissistic culture. But it's crucial spiritually, and I believe for larger healing. It's fine to meditate to practice, to do therapy, to go to yoga and things for our own benefit. That's not necessarily selfish. But when it's limited to our own benefit, then it's selfish. If we really want to weather storms, A crucial piece is outgrowing our self-centeredness. We've all got it. It's not something to feel guilty about, but it's very limiting. And it's one reason why it's so easy to trigger anxiety and fear. To find things that are bigger and bigger and even more big than me and mine. And by the way, my family's not big enough. My Dharma center, my circle of friends, that's still mine. It's just, it's still tiny to really open up. And then this leads to what I'd like to close on All Buddhist teachings are flowing into emptiness and freedom. These are two, there are two different words. Emptiness is sunyata and freedom. There's a couple terms such as vimuti or liberation, vimuti or moksha in Sanskrit. These two terms and similar, there's a whole cluster of them in early Buddhist teaching. All Buddhist practice, if it's really in harmony with the Buddha's purpose, are flowing into emptiness, freedom. And I like to put the two together because emptiness is often misunderstood, and so is freedom. When freedom is about me or mine, it's not free. Making America great again ain't going to be great (laughs) for similar reasons. Freedom is really free when it's empty, And emptiness is really empty in the Buddhist meaning, 
when it's free, which basically is empty of self-centeredness and selfishness, which then creates plenty of space for kindness, compassion, honesty, virtue, gratitude, even a certain amount of fun, creativity, and other healthy stuff. These are some thoughts I'd like to offer for surviving and doing even better than surviving if things get as bad as some of us fear. And maybe they won't get so bad, and then all this will be icing on the cake. But since even if the political situation is in total hell, we're going to get sick, we're going to get old, we're going to die. We're going to have our hearts broken. Stuff happens. So cultivating these capacities to weather inner and outer storms. And with emptiness, the more empty we are, the storms blow through. And there's nothing to get broken. Like the trees I mentioned. The trees that were too sick with disease or the core was rotten just because they were they were too old. Those those fell down, were broken, and so on. But the healthy trees with a good core, and the core of Buddhism is emptiness and freedom. They I watched them getting whipped around in the powerful winds, and maybe they lost a branch or two but they're doing o- doing okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm an American too, so. Alrighty, uh, we have a little time for responses if anybody wants to say something. Um, I was able to follow the deep breathing and breathing completely and letting go. And then opening up yourself and then letting in. So, like, let's just use the example that you gave, like child abuse. And so, and if, and this is where I get stuck. So, you might have an idea. Um, so, if I go, like, okay, there's child abuse, and then I allow myself to let that all in, and then I will go under because one, I attach myself to I am not a solution, and this is so much bigger than I am, and it feels so heavy. I, and you could add whatever the issue is. Um, I think that's where I get stuck. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have ways to, and I understand about detaching myself, not a good word, but letting myself go and in, in coming in and out. But, but I have a tendency to let that stick, and then I get afraid that I'm going to get stuck there, and then I can't get out, and then it, you know, right, my whole right. mind goes crazy. Right, and as they say on MBR, that's a great question. <laughs> Um, because this happens to us over and over again. So part of the 
as we learn that real deep, full breathing, you can't sustain this stuckness and breathe that way. So what you'll notice as you learn about that whole body of breath is when you start reacting to, say, child abuse or or the bad drivers or whatever, your, one, your breathing changes. You get hit with tension in various places, depending, jaw, throat, chest, um, solar plexus, pubic area. Your breath will change. Your posture will change. Your facial expression, all that changes by learning to drop into that breathing again, you open things up again. And by doing so, you can give yourself permission to set aside the information about child abuse or whatever. And go, yeah, me alone is not going to solve it. Which is why we're looking for service to something bigger than us and learning nobody's going to do it alone all this hero blah 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 it's so childish it's how do we find allies and work with others and tackle these things step by step in the way each of us can can do and maybe your issue is not child abuse, it's whatever. But developing our own capacity to be healthy enough that we can address these outer things as well. Otherwise, we keep just shutting down and we're stuck and then we're helping society stay stuck. And the stuck society encourages us to stay stuck. And it's just vicious circles, otherwise known as samsara. So that's a quickie response. And if breathing during meditation doesn't work, qigong, certain kinds of... uh, work like Feldenkrais, I believe. I'm not that familiar with it. Certain kinds of deep massage. There are all kinds of tools for cultivating. I'm personally most familiar with mindfulness with breathing. Plus, I fool around with Qigong and massage. And there are ways to learn this stuff if we wish. And that can go along with the kind of psychological work we may need to do, and so on. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, another metaphor I had, I was thinking of, uh, as you describe your Wisconsin storm, I experienced a Wisconsin storm on Lake Superior, where the winds were reported over 90 miles an hour in a sailboat, in a race, and what we do is reduce sail. And then when you can't even sail with reduced sail, you take the sails down. 
So that and write it out and just write it out, weather the storm. Uh, but so I really appreciate that. The other thing I wanted to uh, note is it's hard to stay stuck when you're doing service for somebody else. You get out of your own psychological traps when you're out there doing service for somebody you're not in here. So it mm-hmm. works. Thank you. Yep. When we serve others, we're serving ourselves. And, yep, thanks. Um, there was a part that you said about the doom and gloom, and this isn't really something that um, I've experienced, but um, uh, there, about 30 years ago, there was that disaster in Chernobyl, and there was like people who got sick and can- had cancer and things. But I um, read an article about it, and that 1,800-square-mile radius is now one of the most important wildlife refuges in Europe, and there are 160 babushkas that live on small farms there. So it's just kind of cool that um, even though there is some still some contamination, that it changed in a way that was unexpected. And it's kind of like I try to look at things that way, and it really resonated with me when you talked about that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I think that's important when our rational mind is so convinced things are going to be horrible. You never know. Or even if they are pretty bad, there's the stuff that's pretty cool. I'm saying, where, where did you say you were from in Wisconsin? Um... I currently live in Monroe County. Yeah, I'm not sure um, what it's like in Monroe, but I have seen some changes here as a result of some of the um, conundrum that you were talking about in the election. And I actually see a positive thing coming out of this. I've seen more people talking and actually becoming alert and not just in words, but in deed as well. So I have seen a rallying cry. And that doesn't necessarily mean that my beliefs are the right beliefs. But I am seeing that enough people are becoming concerned to actually step up, say something, and do something. This is unlike any other period in political history I can that I've lived through where there's a kind of a heightened awareness. Because I didn't go through the 60s. I missed that boat. This is our boat. This is our awakening, if you will. And I am seeing, and I do believe, and I think that's the real message that we need to have, is that there is, there is, there is cohesiveness. Now, I'm not alone, and I can't do this myself, but with enough groundswell and enough continued discussions, enough marches, like the one on the, the Women's March on the actual election, or any other ways. My big bent is environmentalism. That's my big thing. That's my yikes, you know, the 
the monster in the closet that we all are living in. And it's motivated me to, st- I'm, I'm going to do something about it. And I think that's the thing that I think we, and I mean I do it in my small way, but I want to become active in a bigger way. And again, I can't do it myself, so I'm looking for guidance at the same time. So if anyone else is out there. <laughs> so anyway. If you want to yeah. No, thanks for that, because I'm alone from a Buddhist perspective is delusion. It's based in a faulty perception, and then it's solidified into a view. And then it can create emotions like loneliness that then can reinforce it. And a certain sense of powerlessness. And if we ask who benefits or what benefits from our aloneness and powerlessness, we don't. So... Buddhism can contribute to certain aspects of this, like what I just said. And then we've got a lot of other resources that aren't necessarily Buddhist, like uh, the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter, etc., etc. To um, To really be part of humanity. and not just an individual. It's nine o'clock, which I believe is time for a final word from Nancy. Thank you all for coming and bearing with me. And hope to see some of you tomorrow. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.